Welcome to the latest episode of the special series New VC, hosted by Freddie, an analyst at Isomer Capital and Linda, an associate at Karma Ventures. Today we have Andre Bartos with us. Andre is managing partner at Credit Ventures, the well-known Central Eastern European-focused seed fund who backed you iPath. We spoke to Andre to hear his experiences being in venture for 20 years, what he's learned, and his experience remaining on UiPath's board through to its meteoric rise to unicorn status. This episode is brought to you in partnership with Zero 100 Conferences, which organizes networking events connecting LPs and GPs in private equity and venture capital firms across Europe. Their upcoming event, the Zero 100 Conference DACH, will take place on February the 28th to the 29th, 2024, at the Hotel Savoy in Vienna. Attendees will include major LPs and GPs like Atomico, AXA Venture Partners, Early Bird, Earth Group, Dawn Capital, Unica, and many other LPs and GPs. Save the date, February the 28th to the 29th, 2024, at Hotel Savoyen. Join us in Vienna. Welcome to the show, Andre. Pleasure to have you here with us and super excited to have you here. Thanks for having me, guys. Happy to be here. So let's kick it off with the basics. Who are you? Give a quick overview and... It's a super important question for us. What is your superpower and how do you use it? So, hi everyone. I'm Andre. I'm a, I'm a VC. I'm, a, I'm currently a partner, or I can I can actually say a founding partner, one of the founding partners of Credo Ventures, which is a an early stage tech VC based out of Prague, Czech Republic focusing on early stage investments in Central and Eastern Europe. Most of what we do are seed or even pre-seed investments in Central and Eastern European startups or founders, always with the global ambition. With Credo, has, has the kind of the thesis always been the same? Has it changed over time? Has the fund changed over time? Or has it remained relatively the same? What works, works. Well, first of all, when we started, there was no pre-seed, right? The, the category did not exist. So, so we were a seed fund and, and what we thought we would do were seed investments and series A, because we kind of thought that was the beginning, right? I think things have changed, evolved quite dramatically. So, so we, we moved a little earlier, but ideologically we've always been like that so i don't see much of a change some people may perceive some changes over time but i think the overall vision and and positioning stays and you very nicely avoided the superpower question as well so yeah yeah i, mean, <laughs> I forgot i'm sorry i i'm not sure i have superpowers and i guess I am stronger in some things. I would not necessarily call them superpowers. And I'm definitely weak at many things. I've, I feel like I have a good amount of empathy, especially towards founders. I, I love and admire founders. I basically originally started as an entrepreneur, as a founder, but I was a sloppy one. I've never, I've never made it big. 
So hence my respect and and admiration towards founders, which means that I I do feel empathy and and I can relate to many things. So, you know, is it a superpower? I don't think so, but definitely it's an area where I feel I am stronger. I do have ability to sort of spot patterns, which is very important in VC. I can see the big picture. I am very bad at going deeper into stuff. That's why I've, I've never been a good founder myself. You say you haven't you know, been a successful founder, but you did just describe yourself as the founding partner of Credo, which one could argue has been a very successful journey. Yeah, I, I, I suppose you can say that I'm a, I'm a founder of a VC firm, but I've never been a successful fa- startup founder. On the prequel, you described yourself as an OG. You've, be, you've been in venture, what, 15, 20 years? I mean, I think you had your first startup in, in university. I mean, how did it all come about? So it was a, it was a very bumpy and, and lengthy path. I guess I... I always wanted to do stuff. So you can say that I've always been like entrepreneurial. And yes, my first company I co-founded still as a sophomore at, at in college. And I founded more companies than one. But as I said, I, we never made anything spectacular out of it. And one of the things that I learned in the early days was that I was not too good in going deep. I was not too good in sort of creating and managing teams. So whenever the company grew to, you know, 15, 20 people, it, it started to feel, you know, uncomfortable. So, so I turned into more of a consulting. I also sort of met people behind First Tuesday, which was this networking you know, forum back in the late 90s, early 2000s. And I, you know, founded the Czech chapter of First Tuesday. And that's how I got close to investing in tech companies, tech startups. And eventually, I just found myself, you know, investing small amounts, angel investing, you can call it. And then around 2004, I think, I, I started cooperation with MCI, which was a Polish VC slash BE group. And that's, that's when we can, we can say I started doing venture. I learned a lot at, at MCI and uh, in 2009, I, I left to basically start Credo. And and what was the CE VC ecosystem like back, you know, early two thousands? Well, I mean, there was n- not really an ecosystem back then. There were a couple of people calling them VCs, but they were more of like small private equity players trying to buy cheap, get as much equity as possible. You know, most of them local, regional players. So. You know, I, I don't think you could have talked about an ecosystem. So, I mean, Credo was certainly not the first VC firm in the region, but I feel like we were 
one of the first ones that really wanted to do venture, who wanted to do founder-centric investing, who wanted to focus on sort of global visions, that the, the true innovation that was not existent in the region before us. What do you think changed? Because, you know, when you look at now, a lot of these international large funds, you know, funds with long history and, and great track records are now more than ever coming to the region and, 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 and finding, you know, great opportunities here and making investments. So what changed and when changed? I think the region just needed some time. When we started Credo, the region certainly already had a lot of tech talent and the people were, you know, hustlers and then they were innovative, you know, they were inventing stuff. What the region lacked was the experience with company building. It lacked experience in like getting products out to the market and actually creating products full stop. Like people were creative and they loved doing stuff, but, you know, packaging them into products and then selling them to customers, you know, nobody really had experience with that. And, and so I feel like that the region just needed time. I remember in the 2000s talking to, you know, the few successful startup founders coming out of the region and I was convincing them to give more speeches in the region and sort of more evangelizing in the region. And like one of them, Roman Stanek, founder of a couple of startups, most recently Good Data, but before that, Sistinet and NetBeans, he once told me, there are no shortcuts. Just, you know, just accept that. And I, I, was a, I was a bit angry at him back then, but in the hindsight, he was damn right. Like, I don't see shortcuts. What every ecosystem needs is, you know, the first small success stories and then a bit larger success stories and then probably like one Skype-like huge success story and that sort of accelerates the progress of, of the ecosystem. Trying to do it from the outside artificially just doesn't work. So I think the main thing that changed was that, you know, time passed. And when you now kind of look at the UK and US ecosystem and then how they're doing, so do you think that that's still all we need in, in the CEE to kind of get to their level? Uh, with regards to, I guess, the breadth of, of things that are happening and the amount of capital. So is it just that? We need a few more success stories, a bit more experience, and the rest will take care of itself? Well, I think we, we certainly need more success stories and more you know, successful founders and more successful VC funds in order for the region and ecosystem to grow and progress more. I don't think, like, quite frankly... I love big ambitions, but I don't think, you know, CEE should aspire to become, you know, a Silicon Valley because it never will. Like, I mean, even if, if CEE grows, 
you know, I don't think Silicon Valley, you know, stays idle. It's, we should definitely aspire to be as vibrant, as interesting, as fast moving, as innovative as possible. But I don't think we'll ever, you know, become the US or, or even like the UK. Boy, I should be more ambitious, right? That's interesting. Is that is that just you think, you know, in terms of the way you're spinning it, in terms of you just won't ever catch up to that kind of scale? You know, if you're both on a linear path of growth, it's just not going to catch up. Yeah. One of the things that we've been discussing a lot is this idea of, you know, no longer needing boots on the ground to do your DD, to do your deal sourcing. But when you think about, you know, the Western, Western Europe, it's sort of quite large geographies to play in, whereas the CE is a number of smaller countries. How, you know, the associates, deal sourcing engine that, that, that most companies have, what, what advice would you give to the new VC as to finding great, great deal flow out in Central Eastern Europe? Well, I mean, to go back to the beginning of, of the question, I think the presence still helps a lot. I, I am fully aware that during the COVID time, we've all been saying, you know, Zoom's great and, you know, Zoom investing, we're open for business and everything. But I like in the hindsight, I think it was kind of a, you know, kind of a bullshit a little bit. Like, I mean, yes, Zoom helps and there's there's a lot of stuff that you can do remotely like this podcast, but like foot on the ground is still super useful. Going to conferences and meeting people face face to face you know, meeting founders face-to-face, spending some time with them, you know, getting a dinner, getting drinks, it all is very, very useful and helpful in like forming relationships. And this is a, this is a relationships building and you can never build, you know, as high quality relationships via Zoom as you can in person. So I usually try not to give too much advice. I, I, I can tell you my opinion and my opinion is, you know, I would go out there, meet people, network, have drinks with them and try to build meaningful relationships. I suppose that also plays a lot into your superpower, not superpower strength, whatever you want to call it, but the ability to have empathy with founders only really works face to face. There's limits that you can have on Zoom. You can do something via Zoom as well. You can try and read the people a little bit, but it's nowhere close to in person. Yeah. I guess talking about finding great deals in CEE, how does one go about finding a UI path? Yeah, it's not easy. <laughs> uh, I'm not going to lie. I've been trying to find another one for the past couple of years. I don't know, like, I mean, to be quite honest here, I did not find UiPath. Dan Lupu from Early Bird did. I was just lucky enough that I built a relationship with Dan Lupu from Early Bird. So I was one of the people that he shared this deal with. And I was the one who 
who won it over the others. I feel like I did form a meaningful connection with Daniel, the the founder or one of the co-founders of UiPath. And I, I jumped on the opportunity where some of the others passed or did not succeed in building the relationship with Daniel. So I guess that's the that's the fair answer. But I had known Dan Lupu for probably close to 10 years before we we jointly invest in invested in in UiPath. So and we looked at deals uh, together before and I I suppose we formed a, a sort of a bond that then led to this joint investment. Going back to your earlier comment, you said, you know, you need a bit of success. You need a great company to start to lead the way for a region. When you have something like a UI path, does it redefine what great looks like for startups in, in what they look up to? And do you think that has changed the way that you think about your investment, who you invest in? Yeah, I, for sure. And like, again, the whole VC is a lot about experience. It's like without years of experience of investing, I, d I don't think someone can be a good VC. So, you know, you learn with every investment, with every board seat, with every portfolio company, with every exit, with every shutdown, failure, you, you learn, you, you try to sort of navigate what exactly was that worked, what exactly it was that did not. And that means that I, I sure, I learned a lot from UiPath as, as well as from all the others. There are certainly things that I did not look for as much or did not pay as much attention before UiPath, which I changed, like ability to hire fast and fire fast, which worked really well at UiPath. Before UiPath, I think I underestimated the power of clarity of thinking, as in, so I'm, I'm, I'm not a techie myself, right? And I think in my early days in VC, I sometimes sort of failed to try to really understand what the, what the startup is doing, what the product is, what the tech underneath is, because I was like, well, it sounds complicated enough. I don't understand, but it's probably like, you know, the founders say it's great. So it's, it's probably great, but. I, I feel like Daniel was one of the one of the people that showed me that even complicated things can be explained in a super clear way. And clarity of thinking in founders is something that I really, really like. Like that's what I want to have. What else? Ability to learn, but I, I mean, we all kind of want to see that. But again, the pace of the learning that I that I saw at UiPath and both of the co-founders was was great. So certainly I I had learned a lot. Do you think listening to you and 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 kind of seeing that 
you know, not every investor immediately knew that this was going to be the winner. Yeah, you kind of said that there were already investors who had passed on it. Last week, I was listening to Marcus Willig from Bolt, you know, very similar story. Not everybody thought that it was going to be a winner. I've heard similar things from the founders of Vault. And, you know, you start getting, they're all from kind of like similar region and, 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 and similar types of profiles. As investors, we try to look for patterns, right? We try to see like, what was it that, you know, this company had or that company had. And, and none of these people had this like extensive background of, of, of building these great companies before, which tends to be the case more in maybe in the US or UK. But I guess the, the question is, how, did, how can you know in these kind of cases that this is the right investment? Or is it, is it that you can't know that these kind of people are the ones who can, who can build it? And, and ultimately, it's a number of things that they need to get right. Um, well, are there any conclusions we can make out of this? I don't know. <laughs> Maria, I think you can never know. Like, I think we have already told the story of, you know, so we we invested, we did the seed round at UiPath, but then the year after, we had to bridge the company and we had to bridge it, you know, because nobody wanted to do a Series A yet, Right. And like, I, I think, I think I remember I was super bullish and I knew I wanted to put more money in UiPath, but I, was I really, I, I'm, I'm not sure I remember it well. And I guess my point is you can never be sure. Like people who think that VCs who invest in series a or or beyond that they invest in like done deals like you know there's no risk anymore that that's bullshit like there's always risk because those like startups are still like super risky bad super risky enterprises and and things can go bad i I do believe there's a number of parallel universes where UiPath failed because that's what that's what happens. Startups do fail. Was I sure UiPath was going to be a success? No. <laughs> like I I was very bullish. I was very optimistic. You can always know. hope, right? That's why you invest. We always hope and we kind of hope with every investment and still most of them fail. So, you know, there are two possible explanations for that. Either we're stupid and I don't think we are, or at least not completely, or, you know, these things just happen. You know, one of the things that UiPath showed me dearly was, was how important the element of timing is like, you know, timing and sort of stars alignment, perfect storm kind of a situation is, was super important for, for this success. And I, I think for, for most big successes actually out there, could have things gone wrong? Hell yeah. So many things. But they didn't, you know, it was, we were lucky there.
I think that's a big word, isn't it? Luck. You know, there is just a certain amount of luck along with all the other qualities. I agree. I agree. And, and, you know, you can say that, you know, Rafa Nadal or Novak Djokovic have a lot of luck. There's also hard work and good judgments and a certain talent that together with the luck then form the champions. So I'm not suggesting it's all luck. It cannot all be luck, but luck plays a role and we have to accept that. And, you know, if we accept that, we can work with it, right? Let's not get too philosophical here. So we touched on this a little bit earlier in terms of how, how can, you know, the analysts and associates get into Central Eastern Europe to sort of deal source. But what, I mean, what are you telling your, your junior team members when, when they're deal sourcing in terms of how to spot the outlier? I try for them to sort of understand that the best approach is to try to enter every conversation with a startup with a, as little bias as possible, almost like, you know, trying to act like we don't know anything about the space the startup's in so that they have the open mind that's needed so that they don't dismiss sort of brave new approaches to stuff or, you know, innovative ways to, to, you know, serve the market. I certainly try for them to, to have the respect and admiration to the founders because they are the sort of creative ones, right? I am telling them to, to try to create those meaningful relationships and that includes founders we end up not investing in, right? So like what I really would love for the associates or analysts to, to be like is that they should be giving feedback. They should be getting back to all founders, even the ones we don't, we don't invest in. Because I, I believe that long-term this can pay out. They can start another startup, you know, they can refer another founder, they can share good things about us. So I'd say those are the things I can't think of anything else. No more like pieces of wisdom, just those general approach stuff. You said you weren't going to drop any golden nuggets. I think we just had three. Oh, there you go. Oh, great. <laughs> you were gold. Ooh. I gave them out for free. Oh. As I said, straight to the editing room. And, and so on the flip side, I mean, uh, we've touched on the UAGMA, but, you know, what are the ones that you've missed? What, would, you, do you, would you stick behind that decision today? Were there clear reasons why you didn't? Or, or was it sort of for one of the three reasons that you just mentioned that you didn't have at the time? Yeah, good question. So we've missed uh, many. We saw, you know, a very young startup called Muse out of the Czech Republic twice, and we passed twice, pretty much based on the fact that we did not like the space too much. We thought there's not much space for innovation. Also, you know, this was a space, hospitality, hotels and stuff. This was a space where the potential customers were not really used to buying software, which is 
sometimes very tough to overcome. And we felt like it was really difficult to like differentiate from the legacy players and you know build a sustainable USB. So we passed. And and we thought the founders were great and we we liked the product. We just didn't get the conviction around the market and 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 USB. And boom, you know, the founders proved that they were great and and they executed very well on it. And you know, Muse is probably one of the one of the future unicorns coming out of the Czech Republic. So this is a funny one. So we passed on a startup called Wallmine. We were very close to the to to one of the co-founders because he was um, VP engineering at one of our previous portfolio company, Represent.com. And so we were one of the first ones he went to. And we listened to the story and we decided we didn't like the space much and we didn't like the product and it was a consumer play and we're not great at consumer plays. So we passed. We were like, the founder's great. We've known him for years. We highly respect him, but we're going to pass. And what happened was that the founder realized that the market was not great and the proposition didn't quite work. So he pivoted and he pivoted into something that's called BetterStack, which we like a lot. And so we invested at Series A into BetterStack. But we could have been there from seed or actually pre-seed. So I guess, you know, our entry valuation in that one could have been a lot lower if only we trusted Uri more at the very beginning. So I guess the lesson there is, you know, what what all of us are are saying all the time. It's the founder that matters. You know, great founders can pivot or, you know, change shape. So they're a lot more important than, you know, the product or, you know, the market that they're focused on right now. I don't know if based on this piece of experience, I would now invest in Walmart. I, I don't know that, but it, it certainly is something to think about. But the relationship you held that you could get into the Series A. Yeah, I mean, because we, so, you know, coming back to what we, what we always say to everybody at Credo, you know, you have to be respectful, you have to be honest, you have to be open. So from the very beginning, it was not a bad pass. It was not like, you know, we never called him again. We did explain. He did raise his, whatever it was, pre-seed round. And yeah, we we kept the relationship so we could we could invest later. I think we've covered a lot and, and talked a lot about, you know, founder relationship, trust, and 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 kind of longevity and 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 kind of the length of relationships you need to hold in this industry. And, and maybe one of the best examples is you sitting on the board of UiPath for, for way longer than usually seed investors do. So why do you think that happened? Or do you know why you were chosen 
because I guess you were chosen to to be there for that long. Well, but but the thing is, I don't think I I've been chosen. When we did the seed round at the at the very beginning, we just put a certain corporate governance structure, and I guess the true answer to a question why was I you know, on the board for so long is, you know, nobody kicked me out or, you know, they forgot to kick me out or something. I just, you know, we did not sell our shares. And as long as we had, you know, a certain number of shares, I was allowed to to stay. And like, boy, did I want to stay? Like, I, I learned so much on the, on that board. Although, you know, in the like post series B or series C, I don't think I I said a word in in those board meetings. I, I just listened because it was all new for me. So it was great learning for me beyond, you know, series C. I believe I was close to a zero value, but I I was just trying to learn as much as possible. And I tried staying close to the company and to the founders. I tried sort of discussing because similarly to me, the founders, you know, were learning as well. So I feel like those discussions were were interesting, hopefully for both sides. But what were the learnings? Like, I mean, I I was in the in the boardroom when they were discussing how to build and scale teams beyond three thousand employees. Something I have never heard. I mean, I've never seen before. Right? I saw, you know, strategizing discussions around like go to market motions and and sort of the modifications or changes on the way. Like I pretty much saw the company from zero ARR all the way until, so I left the board shortly before the IPO in order not to be an insider after the IPO. So I, the company was probably around what, six, 700 million ARR. And that's, that's what I, scene. It was amazing. <laughs> In the later stages, the board was actually joined by, you know, very experienced, seasoned founders and executives. So I was having a blast. I I always just took my popcorn and I sat in the front row and I was, I was just listening. Do you think that there was a certain value in this continuity, at least for the founders, to have someone listening in and there who's been there from the beginning besides them. Because obviously you have great people with great experience, but there's a there's a certain collective memory in in having at least one person in the room who's been there for a while. So I believe so. So I mean there's no doubt there had been value for me. Like it was definitely valuable for me. If it was valuable for Daniel, I, you would have to check with him. I hope so. There were definitely discussions between him and I one-on-one, which reflected some of what 
have been discussed in the boardroom or during the sort of later rounds, Series C and D and E. And I was always telling him what I thought, but I was always telling him, like, I've never seen this before, but this is what I think, right? If it brought any value, I really don't know. Yeah, I certainly enjoyed the discussions. You know, at some point, young pups get given a little bit of responsibility after investment and go and sit on, on board seats. You know, what's your advice to, to analyst associates or even principals as they get those sort of first positions? Again, I generally don't like giving advice, but my, my view is that I believe people, especially when they start serving on boards or even like observing on boards, I would definitely try to listen more, more listening than talking and not trying to talk at, at any time. Like I, I feel like sometimes I feel like people in the boardrooms are sort of pressured to always say something when somebody else says something but not necessarily it adds much value. I'm a sucker for value. If you don't, if what you're trying to say does not have much value, then don't, don't say it or, you know, or think about it some more. So that would be one thought. Personally, I am not a very prescriptive investor or board member. I hardly ever tell founders what they should do. I am happy to share with them my opinion on what should be done. But then again, going back to the early days of UiPath, you know, a couple of times I, I told Daniel during the early board meetings or outside board meetings that I believe he should not do what he wanted to do. And he still went ahead and he was damn right. But that's probably also the reason for me not being as prescriptive. It should be the founders to make the call and the best founders make the right call. Or at least don't make a wrong call because, you know, what's right, what's wrong, you know, what should have been. But it's their company, right? It's their company, it's their vision, it's their way. So I always share opinions openly and honestly, but I'm hardly ever directing them to something. So if that's an advice, I don't think it's an advice because people are different. And I've seen very prescriptive board members who were super experienced in the space and their prescriptions or directions were correct. And I, I very much appreciate that. And it can help again, you know, it can help the founders to sort of shortcut to bypass some of the mistakes. So that's fine, but I'm not that kind of a board member. So maybe an advice might be, you know, find your way, you know, who do you think you are as a board member or observer? 
guess coming from an executive search background, kind of my thinking it goes into know what your skills are and use the one that are actually useful. Because it's always, you qualify the person who's giving you advice. Is this person the person I should be listening to? And this is kind of the question you should probably as a board member then ask yourself. You know, if it's about follow-on investments, if it's about a certain investor that you know, probably you're fairly safe to give advice and talk versus if there are topics about go-to-market strategies or, 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 you know, which country we should open next. And having ever, never done that, you can probably safely say that you might have some bits of information, but less so to give advice on and what's the right choice. Absolutely. But we have gotten to kind of the, 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 the part of the show where we start to wrap up and we always end with the last two quick fire round questions. The first one is in your career in BC, what's day-to-day skills have been surprisingly useful? Ability to prioritize. In BC, people work very autonomously, independently. Every day is different. And, you know, you just have to be able to prioritize the tasks, things, actions. So that's one. And like staying positive, like, you know, VC can be a hard job in terms of there's so many ups and downs and there are companies going bankrupt and things not working out, you know, as planned. And, you know, unless staying positive, it might, you know, cause some harm on mental health. So that's also why it's not a job for everyone. Yeah. So those two I can think of. And the last one is, I mean, not, not many have as much experience with than you in, 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 in BC. So if you were starting out again today, what would you be telling yourself? I wanted to say that I would, I would tell myself that, you know, people matter more than markets or products, but I feel like people told me when I was starting and I, I listen, it's not like I didn't listen and I probably even was repeating it without deeply knowing it, the knowledge or the acknowledgement came with experience and I feel like it always does. So I don't think there's any advice that I can think of that's easy to be passed on to, you know, young myself, you know, almost two decades ago has to be learned. Maybe I would, I would have told myself, you know, wait for it. It's gonna, it's gonna take a lot longer than you think, and you have to be patient. And probably, you know, over time, there will be points where you will want to quit because it's just taken so long and, you know, you haven't seen the NASDAQ IPO and you haven't seen the unicorn, but hold on, you know, it takes longer. Well, that's a nice way to end it. I'm not sure. Is it, is it optimistic? I mean... I think it's optimistic for the ones who haven't seen yet success or who think that they should be further along in their careers and then feeling the pressure to move super quickly. So I think it is optimistic. It's hopeful. I think so. Like staying hopeful is fine. It definitely takes a lot of time. The annoying thing is that the feedback loop is just so long. 
but let's not talk about that. You know, <laughs> stay hopeful, staying hopeful. Andre, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this special episode on the European VC. If you love our show, join our community by subscribing at eu.vc.